Hello and welcome to another episode of the 1020 podcast. The following podcast is an audio recording of a Twitter space I did together with Elbridge Colby and Albert Marco on geoeconomics. I hope that this is going to be the beginning of new content that I hope to create every week, including podcasts that will feature only myself, conversations with others, and on occasion, a debate format like this one with Mr. Colby and Mr. Marco. I hope you will enjoy it. Now, without further ado, I want to turn to our Twitter space. I'm very happy that I uh, have to introduce to you Elbridge Colby and Albert Marco, both of whom I treasure highly as some of the best experts on issues, geopolitics and geoeconomics. I got a couple of messages before this space saying, well, but they don't seem to agree on everything. And that's exactly the point. Uh, I wanted to have two very smart, very insightful insightful commentators and observers of the current geopolitical scene who do not agree on everything, because I think this is going to be a great way for us to investigate and take a look at what's currently going on. Now, for the first round, this is going to be a like a boxing match, or I think as they would have said in the 19th century, fisticuffs between two gentlemen. So for the first five minutes for each speaker, I kind of want to do a little bit of a reversed role. As those of you who follow Albert and Elbridge on Twitter, they know that Elbridge is more worried about the potential of the conflict between the US and China turning um, uh, into a negative direction, whereas Albert is somewhat, I wouldn't say optimistic, but seems an escalation of the conflict less likely. So what I like to begin with is kind of to uh, Elbridge take Albert's position and then Albert take Elbridge's position, meaning that Elbridge kind of will give us his most optimistic outlook and kind of what he sees as the most important factors that might postpone or maybe avoid a potential conflict between China and the US. And then have Albert come back and say, okay, what he sees as potentially the reasons why conflict could potentially become unavoidable. So without further ado, Elbridge, allow me to hand over the microphone to you and uh, start your insights. Well, great. Well, thanks. Thanks, Ralph. It's a pleasure to be on with you and Albert. Um, I appreciate the, uh, the the challenge. What I would say is I think the reasons for uh, optimism, and I, I don't believe that, that conflict is inevitable, but the reasons for optimism, the most significant would be the fundamental difficulty of achieving, uh, you know, a cross-strait invasion and taking on the United States in what would likely become a regional war. Um, so after all, Taiwan is an island 100 miles off the coast of, the, of, of China. Uh, getting there and sustaining those operations would be uh, incredibly demanding. It doesn't mean they're impossible. Uh, the U.S. has been uh, neglectful and dilatory, but it is it has sort of begun to or more than begun. It has shifted its focus more and more. Um, so if you're China, I mean, the reason that I have for optimism is if you're Beijing, it is a cosmic roll of the dice to um, <clears throat> to launch a, a, an invasion. And, and as part of that, a larger conflict. Uh, with the United States. Um, so that's that's sort of reason, kind of reason one. Um, I also think the Chinese are sensitive to the economic implications. I, my sense is that that if they decided to go, economic sanctions would have very limited impact um, and probably limited efficacy. But as they consider the ramifications and the sort of cost benefit, um, I think, you know, the, the unpredictability about it, the implications for, for China's economy and so forth, probably have a, a cautionary um, sort of uh, pressure on on Beijing. So th those are probably the reasons that I would have for, for optimism. 
Albert, what is your negative outlook on the current situation? Uh, well, thanks for having me on. Thanks, you know, Elbridge for sh showing up and doing this uh, with the time difference and whatnot. But um, uh, for the Chinese, I think that for, for them to be able to launch an invasion into Taiwan, there needs to be certain factors that they've just been pushed into a corner, both economic and politically. Uh, the United States over overplaying its uh, USD weaponization against the Chinese, similar to what they're doing with the Russians. Uh, the United States also pushing the Indians to initiate any kind of cross-border conflict where the, where the Chinese would feel like they're being just cornered in in their own region of the world. I mean, you have, you know, the Chinese, the entire Asian culture is a very face-saving culture. So for Xi to have any kind of embarrassment at the hands of the United States would probably force his hand in trying to take the trying to take Taiwan and adding another layer of defense from the Spratly Islands uh, outwards. Now, they certainly don't want the United States getting more of a footprint in the region like they already have in Japan and South Korea. So for, for, for those reasons alone, I think the Chinese would have to seriously consider a, you know, a conflict with Taiwan and retaking it by force. If you allow me to play devil's advocate for a second, I mean, one theory that is currently circulating is this idea that we are back in the time of great power conflict. And as uh, China is a catching up power, this increases the likelihood of war. You know, Graham Allison talks about the securities trap. And But would you think it might be possible to say, if we look at factors like demography, uh, volatility of the economic system, do you think it would be fair to say that maybe we're not necessarily look at great power conflict because powers are rising, would it also be possible to say we look at great power conflict because in some areas powers are declining? So that maybe the Chinese say, right, they look at, at how their economies in some areas over leverage, they look at the demographic development, and then they looked at, say, the US administration, and maybe, I'm not, I'm not saying they do, but maybe they sense a certain weakness, right? Maybe it is similar to Putin who looked at the US retreat from Afghanistan and says, okay, the, the US are in a position where they are perceived to be weak, so this is our chance to move. So it's it's not that it's powers on the rise that make conflict more likely, that potentially it's uh, it's powers on the decline that could cause uh, conflict to emerge. Elbridge, what do you think about this idea? Honestly, I think this is a, a more a discussion in the United States and the West than it is in China. I mean, talking to people who study China much more closely than I, there, there, I think there is very little sense in China that they are in decline. I mean, to the contrary. I mean, I think there's much more the East is rising kind of confidence. I think they are obviously the demographic issue over a very long period of time is going to have an impact, um, uh, even if it's ahead of the UN projections or the formal projections. They have well over a billion people. There's a lot of people. Um, so, I mean, I think the general cultural mood, as far as we can ascertain in China, is definitely not declinist. I mean, if anything, it's probably more, you know, imperial Germany style kind of chip on your shoulder resentful than it is sort of we're, 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 we're we fear that, you know, we're in decline. I, you know, th that's consistent, though, with being concerned. I mean, Xi Jinping has used language like strangled, like the Americans are trying to suppress China. So you can be, you know, th th those two things go together. And in fact, if you go back to Imperial Germany, there was that phenomenon. Obviously, I don't want to take the analogy too far. But I also think some of the dem demographics and economic issues are really have to be seen in context. All of the East Asian countries are going through significant demographic decline, as is uh, Europe uh, in large swaths, as in parts of the United States. So 
you know, demographic decline is is a relative factor, but it's something that's happening across the developed world. Um, and I, you know, I just I, I think we don't have to get into the sort of, you know, distant mes- metaphysics of whether China's in, in very long term decline. I, I don't think that's something that they really they really seem to put a lot of stock into. Albert, what do you think? Well, I mean, this goes to the many arguments I've had on Twitter and elsewhere about multipolarity in the in the in the global power projection between the powers, which is only one power at the moment, which is the United States globally. I mean, other other than that, I mean, you have regional powers like China in the South Asian, you know, South Asian seas. Russia was in the Central Asian uh, sector. But other than that, it's, you know, there, there is no multipolarity. And I, I do agree that. Most of this, most of these discussions of, you know, the U.S. vacating areas, pulling out troops in Afghanistan and Iraq and what and whatnot is shown as a sign of weakness. And of course, people are going to try to fill the gap like the Turks have tried to fill the gap in Africa and the Middle East by aligning with uh, Qatar and uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel and you know Iran for some in some measures in Africa. So, I mean, you, you have you have this dynamic where. You know, as the United States vacates areas, people come in, you know, everyone starts talking about multipolarity and, you know, the <laughs> the diplomatic crews go out there and start selling it to their leadership. And then their leadership tries to take, you know, as much land as they possibly can, like we saw with Russia. So there is, you know, that that's my that's my stance on that. I mean, do you think, and, and here I can give a shout out to one of our listeners, uh, Velina Chakarova is listening, and she recently published a very interesting paper on kind of the future of, of European security policy. And uh, one argument that I find quite interest, interesting is if you look at kind of just the statistical numbers, right, population, uh, economic power, the, the size of the militaries taken together, Europe could be a formidable both economic and military power, but it looks like that they lack the will to do so. So they might have the capacity, they might have the capabilities, but they might lack the will. Now, now do you think that this element, I know it's a, a little bit metaphysical, but but maybe you can entertain the idea for a second, I, that even the, the best military and the best economy might not suffice if you lack the willpower to use it in, in a geostrategic context. Albert, what do you think? Yeah, I, you know, the Europeans have multiple problems with that. I mean, the lack of will is you know, one of the main ones because they still have this, you know, embarrassment of colonialism in Africa that they're still, you know, dealing with. But but even besides that, I mean, for, for the Europeans to... to ramp up their military expenditures. I mean, you're talking about, you know, tens of trillions of dollars, which they don't have at the moment. But, you know, they're they're caught in a doom loop. Like, you know, if they want to if they want to get better trade deals globally, they have to have a military power projection. So they have a give and take here. But, you know, if they even if, if they even start ramping those uh, costs up and what, what happens to the social programs? I mean, none of the politicians currently would ever dream of removing social programs from European from European governments, knowing that they'll most likely be voted out the next election. Agreed, but just as a quick follow-up, but what we did see, just as a quick example, right? Germany spent almost half a trillion, a little bit less, only on energy in the year of 2020. 
2022. Uh, all of Europe taken together, they spent about 1.2 trillion. So apparently when it comes to some areas, they are willing to spend money as much as they can. And a lot of this is also driven, half a trillion was spent over the last 20 years on the energy transition. So when it is ideologically opportune or when they have the conviction it is necessary, it looks like that Europeans can spend a lot of money, but it seems that this idea never extends to the, the realm of the military or to the realm of, of really becoming this global player that they uh, that they want to be. What's what you take on this, Elbridge? Well, let me get back. I mean, I disagree with Albert that that it's unipolar period. I mean, you know, objectively, the the by standard metrics, the Chinese economy is roughly at a similar order of magnitude to the United States. There's some people who point out that some elements of, of Chinese economic power might be exaggerated, but by the same token, there are elements of American economic power that might be exaggerated. I mean, the United States is largely at this point a service economy. The Chinese are the you know industrial workshop of the world. So from a, con- a kind of geopolitical point of view, there are some arguments that China- we're undercounting China's strength, especially when you use market exchange you know, rates. And I mean, the Chinese are not purely a local power. They, they are building the world's largest Navy and they're increasing. I mean, if you look at their basing ambitions, as according to the U.S. Department of Defense and the U.S. intelligence community, they're they're throughout. I mean, they're throughout the South Pacific and the Indian Ocean, even into the South Atlantic. So I think that's the world we're and I mean, I think we just seen a recent example of their growing influence in, in the, you know, the arrangement with the Iranians. I mean, Europe. <clears throat> Look, latently, I mean, that's like, you know, Germany was always like, you know, wealthiest and most populous part of Europe for hundreds of years, but it wasn't able to translate that into cohesive power until the unification. So, I mean, you know, Europe has a lot of, you know, productive capacity. It has a lot of kind of latent military power, but it's very, very far from turning that into any kind of cohesive realities, particularly at the European level. And I mean, I think the behavior of the of the Federal Republic of Germany just makes that even more difficult because that that's the only country that could realistically, you know, provide the muscle and kind of economic muscle and so forth to substantiate that. So, I mean, I think Europe is more likely to be a kind of local and, and more of a, a, you know, sort of area of geopolitical competition between, you know, mostly concerned about itself. And this is one of the objections I have to the European powers kind of the brits for instance looking at this tilt towards the indo-pacific and the united states placing a lot of weight on what europe is going to be able and willing to do in in the western pacific i just don't think it's going to amount to much at the end of the day it's not that it isn't desirable it might very well be desirable from the u.s point of view to some extent obviously there's the legacy of colonial and all that colonialism and all that but i just don't think i don't think it's a prudent bet I mean, if, if we would kind of, and, and then of course want Albert also to reply what you said about the, the comparison of unipolar and multipolar. But if we look at the European situation, I just want to press this point the last, uh, last time because I feel that there is a somewhat cultural dimension to the, the current uh, geopolitical competition. And we currently see the French economy being paralyzed, including strikes at LNG ports, which are quite important at the moment because they want to raise their retirement age from 62 to 64. And this brings me back to what Albert said about social programs. I mean, is it fair to say that not everyone, but a significant part in Western Europe, at least, I think Eastern Europe is somewhat different there, but that they simply want to be left alone from global politics, that kind of they want kind of to go into this long sunset 
subset of aging populations with a strong welfare state, however that might be financed and however that, that might be sustainable, that would be a separate topic. And they really want to be left alone from all these uh, international conflicts and international tensions, including to some extent what's happening in Eastern Europe and in Ukraine, so that it's less that you know Western Europe is either pro or 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 you know pro-Ukraine or anti-Russian or or the other way around, but it's simply that they're annoyed by it because it's a distraction, it's an annoyance from uh, the the what is seen as a large issue, whether it's retirement age or welfare issues. And this then on the long term means that are the Europeans then going to be a, a net asset or a net drag on U.S. capacities? Uh, Albert, then, then, then please, Albrecht. You know, <laughs> um, that's quite the, quite the question here. Um, the, the Europeans, you know, the Europeans have so, so many problems right now, specifically concerning trade. For, for them to sit there and carry on by piggybacking on the United States economy by, by getting swaps, is just, it's, to me, it's just been childish and amateur hour for, 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 the, for the entire past, what, 40, 40 years, 50 years? So, I mean, we, we can sit there and discuss this blue in the face, but I mean, until the Europeans have like a, have a concrete discussion within their own European Union and who's going to lead this effort to militarize and actually push, you know, you know, push for the push for reforms, I, you know, it's just it's just a you know, moot point in my position. Elridge? Well, I, I mean, I tend to resist kind of explanations for state behavior that are too reliant on culture. I mean, obviously, there is something to the kind of end of history um, idea, and it's sort of acculturation, you're sort of a post-historical mindset. I mean, on the other hand, you know, the French, for instance, the, at least the French state does not want to participate in that. I mean, and even and the Brits continue to at least have aspirations. I think the main thing is just the the fact that the European, you know, I mean, 50 years ago, certainly 100 years ago, the European states were by far the most powerful in the world in the United States and, and Japan. And now that's not really the case. So there's just much more limited um, in what in, in what they can do. So I, I mean, that I, I take your point. I might not put it quite so much on the on the sort of post historical stuff as, as as much of a problem as I think that is. But that leads me, Ralph, to kind of suggest that we should the European states should really focus on their, you know, kind of territorial defense in Europe and not sort of these kind of grand, we're going to go out and ride out and save the rules-based international order or wherever to challenge these kind of delusions. No, I, 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 I tend to agree with that. However, if they want, if they want to start solidifying their trade globally out into the emerging markets, specifically Africa, they need to take, they need to take the lead. They need to stop piggybacking, piggybacking on the U S and they need to take lead in Mali, Chad, uh, you know, Namibia and all these other areas that Wagner and the Chinese have been encroaching on. I mean, even the Turks noticed this and they've been doing the same thing. They've sent out their drones. They sent out uh, their diplomatic corps. They've been pushing in Africa. Well, why aren't the Europeans doing this? I mean, this is. No, I think Africa, you're right. I mean, that, that is Africa and the Near East are the most and I guess Central Asia are the natural area. I mean, they're the neighboring areas for for Europe. And I mean, there's clear direct interest. So, I mean, I, I agree with you that Africa is a natural area for Europe to to focus its its kind of power projection and you know state there's also migration stabilization terrorism etc so they haven't done a very good job on it necessarily i mean they I mean, it's hard we haven't done a great job on it either but no i agree with that point 
One of the, the big issues that is even making the headlines more and more, kind of two, uh, two issues if one wants. One, of course, is the importance of microchips and semiconductors in the future. And the other one is who has the resources necessary to produce them. Now, particularly advanced semiconductors are mostly produced in Taiwan and, and South Korea. And I would like to ask you, how much do you think this could become a threat to the U.S. economy? And maybe as a broader question, maybe just you know, shortly, one of you can walk us through, how did it come up or how did it emerge that in such crucial areas, such a dependency on the Asian market, in this case, particularly Taiwan and South Korea, uh, came came together. And secondly, because we saw this in other areas as well, I think one of the things during the pandemic was that whether it was pharmaceutical products or whether it was protective equipment, uh, a lot of this has been outsourced in this case to China, right? And I think it became really clear that this is a weakness. Maybe you can give us a little bit of a, a historical look at it, an assessment and how you think that this might develop uh, in the future. Kind of who, who wants to go first? Well, I mean, I can, I just talked about this, so it's fresh in my head, actually. <laughs> I mean, this basically goes down to environmental policies between the United States and the U.S. I mean, if to make to make semiconductors, to do the mining, to make the semiconductors, to do the active pharmaceutical ingredients uh, on U.S. soil or European soil is cost prohibitive. There's so many regulations out there, and so so many uh, so many laws for the for the climate change and climate policies that it's just impossible for the United States to onshore all these things back to the back back home it's just it's, it makes it cost prohibitive the same thing for the europeans i mean we can push it over to to mexico but I, you know i don't even think that the mexicans would really want you know all those dirty uh dirty active uh, pharmaceutical ingredients uh polluting their water and their uh, airways at the moment nobody wants it really it's really down to india and china to do that and i don't think that's going to change anytime in the near future to be honest with you yeah, I think it's I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting you say that, Albert. I, I've had the same suspicion. I mean, Morris Chang's reaction to the Chips Act, which was a sort of scornful derision, was was telling. Like, I don't think this is something that's just going to I mean, it's a little bit like the defense industrial base. These like these things aren't going to be really materially addressed by relatively kind of small changes there. They reflect much deeper decisions. I mean, look at rare earths, right? Like we we could have a very large rare earth um you know, production and mining and so forth, as far as I understand. But uh, it's a result of, uh, you know, environmental decisions, probably labor decisions, et cetera, that are, that are really deeply rooted. And I mean, also, you know, a kind of working culture, uh, you know, that they have at like TSMC that I'm not sure that maybe, but I'm not sure that we could replicate um, in the United States. I, 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 you know, someone like Matt Stoller says we can, I, I, he knows more about it than I do, but like, I, I do think, I mean, I think as a geopolitical sense, we, you know, made a lot of decisions in the era after the Cold War. I mean, I'm always, I think it's really important for us to distinguish the Cold War from the post-Cold War era. A lot of people like to talk about, oh, we're leaving the cold post-war as in post-World War II. And that's wrong. I mean, the Cold War, our strategy was pretty good. I mean, we made some mistakes like in Vietnam, but we were pretty hard-nosed. We had an understanding of who our allies were, what the main threat was. Our economic policy was tied to our over geo overall geopolitical policy. It reflected the relative strength of the American economy. Post-Cold War, we let, we let sort of a kind of, you know, very ambitious highfalutin liberalism, to go back to the end of history kind of idea, end of history approach, just kind of run roughshod. You know, it was really, it was not like well, the, the Western world, as in the, the NATO and the U.S. allies and the Asia world against the Soviet Union, it was like 
we're going to cover the whole world. There was WTO. There was the opening to China. There was, you know, responsible stakeholder. There was we're going to democratize the Middle East. And I think that it's 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 from that world where we got the idea that like letting a lot of our I mean, in the 80s, as I understand it, we were quite concerned about this. There were actually I mean, the Reagan administration actually, as I understand it, you know, was actually trying to, to prevent the offshoring of a lot of the semiconductor industry. But after the Cold War, it was like, well, we're living in unipolarity. Nobody can challenge us. And I mean, there's always, you know, my point about the opening to China, not the opening, but the, the post Cold War economic opening to China was there was a twofold bet. Most people focus on the first one, which is that we would transform Chinese political culture and society into, you know, liberal or whatever. But the, the secondary part, which, which was the more fundamental error, was that we would still outcompete the Chinese even if they cheated on WTO entry and all that kind of thing. And that one was the one that was, that was really uh, critical. And that's the one that said, well, you know, it doesn't matter where semiconductors are produced because we live in Tom Friedman's world and it's perfectly efficient and nobody with a McDonald's fights each other. And now we're realizing, whoops, that was actually really incredibly wrong. Uh, and even Tom Friedman has, has abandoned that idea. Um, but here we are. Not only is it incredibly wrong, but it opened up a pathway for the Chinese and the and the, and the Russians to use um, economic warfare as asymmetrical weapons against the United States. I mean, they, the Chinese can have you know phantom fines on U.S. companies over there, and the ramifications back home uh, become political. So they they that's that's one of the things I always watch and telling uh, tell clients is you know you got to look at what the Chinese want to do politically which would um, affect the U.S. economy and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's definitely definitely something we should definitely be looking at. I mean, as you guys correctly pointed out, I think is is that that when in the West or Europe was at the zenith of its power, you know, 100, 150 years ago, a lot of this was because they dominated production, and one of the reasons why they dom dominated production was because of access to energy. And I think it's becoming clear now that energy really is one of the crucial elements of the future, as of course is access to minerals. And uh, just a few examples: the the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline. I know that I think just today, an oil project was approved by the Biden administration in Alaska. So it looks like that there might be some change in thinking. But we know, as Albert, as you mentioned, there would be rare earth reserves in the US. There would be lithium reserves in Maine. Uh, Sweden recently discovered a significant uh, resources in the area of rare earth. So these resources probably would be there, but there seems to be an ideal ideological barrier to exploiting them. So would it be fair to say, maybe not necessarily cultural, but one of the reasons why in this competition we sabotage or Western nations sabotage themselves is because it looks like that they still value certain ideological goals more than others. And then on the long run, could this become problematic? Or do do you believe that both of you, this question goes to both of you, or do you believe that at some point the collision with reality simply forces a change in attitude when it comes to mining, when it comes to refining, uh, when it comes to drilling and exploration well i mean maybe i'll jump in. i mean yeah don't get me wrong i mean these i mean you see it in the united states too i mean um yes this this ideology does have an enormous impact on how much you're willing and able to you know leverage your your latent power for and, and capability for you know to actually re realize uh, strength and i mean mining and energy production is is a great example. I mean, you've seen with the Europeans burning coal at a higher rate this year that eventually at some point there's likely to be a correction, but it can a lot, a lot of bad things can happen. And in fact, especially with China, given how strong it is, 
you know, irreversible or irremediable levels of damage can 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 happen. Um, but I mean, I think I think this kind of I mean, and you know, I mean, I think the the alternative view represented, you know, von der Leyen was in Washington meeting with the president. I mean, is, you know, quote unquote, we can work together. We can create this green energy. We can norm this. You know, this will be the future you know, fossil fuels at the end of, end of, you know, will kind of go out the back door of history, et cetera. So I think that's their, you know, and that's, that's what's critical to the, the alternative mindset. I mean, they're not obtuse to these issues. Um, But I think, I think at some point, like, uh, you know, the the reality is going to hit home. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, once, once stress, once, once things stress the system, uh, the policy that are in place, you'll see a lot of changes, specifically what the Germans had to do um, with uh, energy prices skyrocketing. I mean, there's just sometimes the reality just kicks you in the face and they have to do an about, you know, about face turn and, you know, move another direction. And they're trying to do that and balance uh, reality with, you know, political implications for the leading the leading party at the moment. So that's like I said, as soon as you stress the system the reality hits and all these policies will have to be readdressed. Oh, one of the ideas that has also been circulated recently, and I'd be curious to get your take on this, is that there is this division. I know some of our listeners are from Hungary and from other Eastern European countries. And there seems to be this division a little bit in the attitude towards geopolitics in, in Eastern Europe and in, in Western Europe, and with some countries a little bit doing their, their, their very own thing. On the long run, on the medium to long run, do you think the United States should, I I hesitate to use the term exploit because it it has such a negative connotation, but there have been discussions that maybe in the future the US should focus more on cooperation with Poland and and maybe when there is peace, you know, kind of find ways to integrate Ukraine and then kind of to form an an Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-American Eastern European kind of block and, and quote unquote, more or less leave Western Europe uh, to its own. Do you think that is a, a kind of a, a thing worthwhile entertaining or do you think it's, it's pure fiction? Because despite the military prowess that probably is higher in countries like Poland compared to, to Western Europe, the economic power of Western Europe for now is still higher than in Eastern Europe. So it's either going to be cooperation with all of Europe was slash all of the EU or, or none of it? Or do you think that at some point there will be kind of a, a, a two-prone approach how Washington deals with its European partners and European allies? I, I, think, that, I think that the United States needs to push the Europeans for an entire, in the entirety. It needs to be the West and the East coordinating with, you know, for defense. It just can't be pushing the Eastern Europeans to do it because, of course, Poland's going to, you know, ramp up their military as much as possible. The Albanians will do the same thing. Uh, Greece, you know, so-so, and but the Turks are always a little bit of a problem. But you got to put the, the European Union has to be pushed and forced into a position to where they have to take responsibility for their own defense. They cannot rely on the United States forever and have no defense because at that point you become a vassal of the United States and you lose your geopolitical uh, uh, bargaining chips. Yeah, I mean, what I would say a little bit different, I mean, is I think there's there's two options that the United States has. I mean, given that that, you know, at least our stated policy, and I think it's the right one, I wish we were better at implementing is that China's the priority. You know, Europe remains very important, but it's a secondary theater compared to Asia. So the question is really like, ultimately, how much is Europe? How can we work with Europe in alignment vis-a-vis 
China while protecting Europe from uh, or helping Europe protect itself from from, you know, Russian aggression, which obviously is both manifest, but more limited than many of us feared in the past. Um, uh, I mean, I think that, as, as Albert rightly said, the Europeans need to take a much higher level of, of responsibility for their own defense. And that's just like a that's just the council of prudence and practicality. Like we just, we don't have, we're, we're not, we're not in a unipolar world anymore. So we've got to prioritize China, whether we like it or not, whether Biden likes it or not, it's going to happen. Um, what I would say is I think that, you know, in a sense, and I, I wrote a piece about this in international politique a few years ago, the, the German magazine, you know, arguing in a sense that, that there could be a new transatlantic bargain where the United States could work with Europe, including the European union in a new way that was in a sense, in my view, less, uh, sort of domineering uh, U.S. role in Europe than had been the case certainly during the Cold War, but even during the post-Cold War period in which, you know, the U.S. took a, 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 continued in this very kind of dominant mode. But the U.S. could be open to working with Europe in, in a sense, quote unquote, you know, cohesive Europe, if Europe basically did more more took more responsibility for its own defense and was broadly aligned on the China issue, it doesn't mean like agreed on every issue, but basically we're on the same side in terms of geoeconomics and that kind of thing, which is the problem with the, when, when Macron talks about the third pole, that, that undermines the whole logic of that argument. The problem is if Europe's not going to do that, and particularly the, Euro the leading European economies, Germany and, and France have indicated that they're not, then, I mean, America's incentive shifts to working with countries in, within Europe rather than Europe as a whole, but the countries within Europe that have aligned interest or are willing to work with the United States basically on, on China, but also, you know, more on uh, more effectively vis-a-vis -vis the Russian threat. I mean, to me, Poland should be, you know, our top, uh, you know, sort of one of our genuinely top allies, certainly not only in Europe, but in the world. I mean, Poland is spending upwards towards 5% of GDP on defense. I mean, it's going above and beyond. I mean, Stoltenberg himself has said that 2% is basically now a floor, not a ceiling. You know, meanwhile, we're like lauding the Germans and, and, Biden, Biden gives Schultz, uh, you know, private visit in the White House uh, a week and a half ago when the Germans are completely wasted a year on the Zeitenwende. I mean, I'm not even sure they're actually going to do it, which is, I mean, shocking. But, you know, and, and they're asking for a lot of, you know, empathy and understanding when they, you know, basically laughed at the Americans when they were warning them about the Nord Stream 2 issue and others, including the Poles. So I don't have a tremendous amount of sympathy on this point. And if, the, if we're not going to make any progress, we should work with countries Italy, Poland, the United Kingdom, maybe France, you know, maybe Finland, I don't know, you know, who are who are going to take this problem more seriously and work with us in a more constructive way. And if that means going around Europe, then so be it. Yeah, the only see the, the problem becomes specifically for the Europeans uh, acting against China with the U.S.'s favor is their economies are so tied to the Chinese market share at the moment that for them, it's almost suicidal economically to sit there and kowtow the U.S. position in China, which I, you know, on top of that, the Chinese don't have a history of invading countries like the Russians do on the doorstep of, of Eastern Europe at the moment. So it's, 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 it's a hard sell for the Europeans. I, I agree with you. I think it's wrong. I think they do need to focus more on China because they are coming. They are gaining strength, whether it's re we can we, we disagree on whether it's regionally or not. But I mean, the Indians has a huge market share available for the Europeans. The African continent has a huge market share and that the Europeans definitely need to step up. Well, a couple, just, the Chinese definitely have history of invading other countries. If you ever go to like the Vietnamese War Museum in Hanoi, you can see it. They invaded Tibet. They invaded large. I mean, essentially, China is actually itself 
a reflection of a successive. Uh, I mean, it was not a unified entity historically. They are preparing a military to invade Taiwan. They've, they've actually attacked, they invaded parts of, of what the Indians consider their territory. They fought a territorial war with the Soviets uh, back in the 1970s. They intervened in Korea. Um, and, and the list goes on. Most of the reason they haven't been doing a lot of invading in the last couple hundred years is because they've been weak, which they're acutely aware of and seeking to rectify. But your first point I completely agree with, which is that the and this is the fundamental flaw in the Biden administration's Europe policy, but really its whole strategy, I think, which is really predicated on a kind of deal, I, as far as I can tell, with the Europeans that we will go whole hog for Ukraine, although we'll see. I, I detect. Well, Politico detects. Uh, cracks in that, which tells you that it's really happening because that's a friendly administration source. But um, but basically that we will we will take the lead and we'll double down on Europe and all that kind of stuff and the NATO thing. And uh, in exchange, the Europeans will be with us on China. And I, my point of view is the Europeans not only are not giving any signal that they're going to support us in the event of a conflict, but they're actually giving the, the reverse signal like Macron and Schultz said they're against decoupling. Ma Schultz led a delegation. I mean, he, the man, the chancellor of the world, Germany's of Germany, the world, Europe's largest economy, led a delegation of major German businesses to China just a few months ago. So like what? And I mean, yeah, maybe they'd put some sanctions on in the event of conflict. But Albert, you're exactly right. I mean, the Germans in particular heavily dependent on exports to, to China. You can't I mean, as the head of VW said, you can't replace that. So I actually don't think it's reasonable to ask the Europeans to declare economic warfare that would probably result in suicide. But the upshot of that is that we need a better military capability in the Western Pacific, which instead we're, we're concentrating, you know, we spent over $100 billion in Ukraine last year. I'm sympathetic to the Europeans. I think we should support them, but consistent with a genuine prioritization of the Western Pacific and Taiwan. And the, Europe, and the Europeans should step up. And the, the way you would do that is you would actually put pressure on the Germans in particular, you would laud the Poles for doing what, what everybody should be doing. But we're basically kind of doing, I don't know if it's the reverse, but like we're, we're elevating the Europeans and we're, we, the Americans, are sucking the oxygen out of the room by, you know, this, this sort of idea that the Americans are leading and doing everything. And we're, we're literally giving the majority the money and all this stuff, which we have continue to have elevated force levels in Europe, which doesn't even make sense because the official assessment of the director of national intelligence is that the Russian army has been worn down and has limited capability for the coming years against NATO. I mean, they're still a threat, but like, if we think they're less of a threat, why do we have elevated force levels in UCOM when people are saying Xi Jinping wants the ability to invade Taiwan by 2027? By the way, that has gone from being a kind of fringe view a couple of years ago to being the official assessment of the US intelligence community. According to Bill Burns, the CIA director, he said, Xi Jinping has given the PLA the order to be ready to in successfully invade uh, Taiwan by 2027. It doesn't mean he's going to do it, but it's like a, probably about as much warning as you're going to get in a competitive and dangerous world. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's funny you actually mentioned that. Um, uh, I was really, really against the Biden administration trying to cut the throats of the Russians after this war in Ukraine, simply, I mean, only for the selfish interest of how do you justify military budgets in Europe with the United States military if there's no threat? You know, if, if, if everyone views that the Russians are so, no longer a threat, you, can't, you just can't justify the budgets. But like you said, we're ramping up the military in, in Russia, uh, in Europe for the Russian threat. Meanwhile, uh, the Chinese are gaining, uh, gaining strength and putting you know, militarized border 
with the Indians, which are, you know, in my view, really good allies with the West, regardless of what people think about the Russian oil purchases and Russian S-300 purchases for defense materials. It's just that's completely should, should not be looked at in the same manner. But yes, I agree with you on that one. I see that Greg Connolly from Sydney has joined us. So I think this is a very good uh, point in time to a little bit make also the pivots to uh, Southeast Asia that you gentlemen have already talked about. I mean, one of the things that came up as a consequence of the sanctions on Russia, I think very much to the disappointment of both Brussels as a re representative capital of the EU and Washington was that many countries in the world did not really follow suit. So that, that these sanctions are primarily Western sanctions, but they're not really sanctions by the global community of by the world. So it seems pretty clear that national interest is back, right? That this is really a concept that was, it was somewhat of a dirty word, you know, two, three years ago, but now it's kind of on everybody's lips who talks about, about geopolitics, uh, which leads to the question, do you think that diplomacy will play a more important role again? And why I'm asking this is because in the past, it seemed that both European politicians, but also American politicians in the foreign policy, they could have the occasional gaffe or the occasional blunder, but the power structure was in a way that it didn't really matter. Now, if we look at, for example, the relationship between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the US administration, where it really seems that the Saudis are, are displeased with Biden, particularly when he said he wants to make uh, a Mohammed bin Salman, an international pariah and, and these kind of things. And also with India, which is interested in having good relations with everyone, but of course also clearly pursues its own national interests. So, so do you think it is fair to say that in the future, we might need foreign policy staff, uh, both in the US and Europe, that kind of relearns the art of diplomacy and, and is no longer just kind of paying lip service to, to whatever is the topic of the day. And I, I don't want to be too provocative here, but that sometimes maybe it is more important to be on good terms, let's say, for example, with Saudi Arabia than, uh, and again, I, I apologize, I don't want to, to be insensitive here, but maybe then to raise, you know, the rainbow flag at the, at the U.S. embassy in Riyadh, that kind of we have to be more, not sensitive, but more attuned to also the, the priorities and, and ideological and cultural characteristics of those countries who might not be our best friends, but whom we want to have uh, aligned on our, si on our side when it comes to pursuing our own interests. Well, I've, I've spoken out against the State Department numerous times over the few past few years and even more loudly now. I think a lot of the problems that we have currently, whether it be Afghanistan, uh, Albania, with some of the European countries and whatnot, stems from the from the State Department. I You know, they they have in their foreign services tests questions about abortion and gun rights and whatnot. And in my view, what they do is they try to weed out uh, conservative uh, people specifically to maintain like the liberal view that aligns with you know, the people that are in charge in the bureaucratic circles up in the state department. And I think it's a really big problem. I, you know, you have when the, when the Trump administration was uh, in power on the ground, however, the state department people officials were still pushing their own personal views with the, with the Europeans. And that's a problem because the European diplomatic corps, they, they gather information from the State Department officials and they push it up the chain all the way to leadership. And that's how they that's how their foreign policy gets enacted. The problem is the United States, China and Russia don't work like that. They actually work through the military attaches, specifically the United States goes through the Pentagon. You want real diplomacy. You go through the Pentagon. In the case of Saudi Arabia, when they have a problem, they don't call the State Department. They call the Pentagon to send over Apaches. 
That's just the reality of the situation. And the, and when you upset that balance, you create chaos and division with, within your allies. And we have issues like we have now with the Saudis. Elbridge, uh, care to comment? Yeah, I think I mean, I think you're exactly right in the sense that um, about the point that diplomacy will be increasingly important. And I think that's in a sense a function of, again, I go back to the structure of, of, you know, we're no longer in unipolarity. We are in a period that's more characterized by bipolarity with features of multipolarity is kind of how I put it. But, you know, clearly the United States and China are by far the largest actors in, in the international system. And they're increasingly rivalrous, as you would expect. Um, and that's very likely to continue as a structural reality. And in that context, um, you know, a lot of players, and, and as you rightly put it, Ralph, Saudi Arabia is a classic example, are going to be trying to play both sides and get and see what they can get. The Emirates is another example. Um, you, know, you see it clearly in ASEAN, in Latin America, in Africa, and to some extent even in Europe, where a number of countries are playing kind of footsie with the Chinese over various things. So in that context, you know, I mean, in a way, our foreign policy over the last generation has become almost like a like a um, missionary work for like progressive liberalism in a lot a lot of places, you know, sort of like I mean, I don't want to say liberalism, but kind of progressive values and, and these kinds of things and more of like an instructional kind of thing, like a sort of converting the heathen sort of idea. And instead of being like a diplomatic service in the sense that we want, I mean, obviously they're great people in the, in the State Department and they're doing you know, great work and so forth. But on the whole, I think the idea that like, you know, we're supposed to be out there working with countries that have options that uh, are, you know, calculating based on a power rather than sort of we're in a position to sort of dictate to them is something that's kind of foreign to our foreign policy on both sides. Um, I mean, if you look at George W. Bush and Madeleine Albright, they weren't that far apart in a lot of ways. And so I think what we're going to need is, in a sense, a return to classical diplomacy, um, you know, which is to say, you know, trying to understand what the counterparty is is looking for, you know, what we can realistically give that's worth it for us in light of the, you know, the competing offer, in a sense. Um, and I think that's gonna, that's become very real in, in the Middle East. And I think we'll see that um, more and more. And the other point is, is because a lot of that sort of missionary zealotry was backed by military force, you know, in the sense that like, if somebody didn't do what you want, you could threaten to, to bomb them. And that that's not true anymore, because we need to husband our military power uh, in order to face off on the primary competitor. And that's going to be a, a, a different a different world than people are used to. Yeah, I, I agree with the diplomatic stance, but I, I still disagree with you on the unipolar, you know, the multipolar, bipolar atmosphere of where we're in right now. So let's take a look at the Saudi Arabians at the moment. The only reason that the Saudi Arabians and the, and the Iranians got together is because the appease China, which is their biggest uh, oil client at the moment. They're both competing for, for market share, as are, the, as are the Russians. But the moment that there's going to be a conflict with the Houthis or name your proxy group against the Saudis, they're not going to run to China. They're going to run to the United States because the United States is the only military that has the, that has the capability to defend our allies. The Chinese, can't, the Chinese can't even go across the world to do anything. So for, for me, when you talk about multipolarity, you know, I start looking at assessments of you know, what can the Chinese realistically do outside of their immediate borders? And for, for me, it's almost absolutely nothing. Zilch. I, I mean, Albert, I got to tell you, like I, you say that, but I mean, one, like the economic, you, you could question the economic data, but the, the macroeconomic data that we have available to us the, is, suggests that China is, if not a larger economy, according to purchase power and parity, is at least in the, in, the, in the same ballpark. And I'll tell you, 
that your your sanguinity is not shared by the U.S. military establishment. I mean, you, and you don't have to take it from me. Look at what they're saying. I mean, the recent recently retired head of U.S. Strategic Command said the ship of American military conventional superiority over China is slowly sinking, or words to that effect. Um, you, you you might say they're wrong or they're exaggerating or whatever, but I mean, they're going to have five or six aircraft carriers by the end of the decade. They are built. They are outbuilding a huge space architecture. They are building nuclear-powered submarines. Their shipbuilding industry. So we have four shipyard naval shipyards. They have thirteen. One of theirs is larger than all of ours combined. They have a larger navy than we do. Yes, we have larger tonnage, but they have the advantage of of supply. You can see the. I mean, look at look at the Wall Street Journal in the last few week. There was a very important article by Michael Gordon about how 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 significant the challenges to our military superiority are. And look at the article on the South China Sea. I mean, they have militarized these. I mean, one of those islands is actually larger, at least in outline, than the District of Columbia. So, I mean, I understand that's your view. That's not the view of the U.S. defense establishment. I mean, and this is the Biden administration, by the way. This is not like, you know, hard-nosed types or whatever. But, like, they're saying China is the only country that can challenge the U.S. globally and so forth. And, the you know, the statement is that they want to have these. I mean, they, they were looking to build a base in Equatorial Guinea, which is on the Atlantic coast. Now, can they do it right now? No, but we're thinking about five, 10, 15 years. They're, that's what they're looking at, maybe even 20. But if countries like Saudi Arabia are calculating in Iran, no, Saudi Arabia is not gonna completely go into the Iranian or the Chinese camp. Of course, they're gonna try to, and they have a long legacy relationship with us. But it's very significant that they are looking to the Chinese. And I think that's a real indictment of U.S. statecraft. I mean, most countries, for instance, the Indians, who I think are critical partners of ours, and I have a lot of respect for, they have a very healthy regard for the Chinese. Like, they do not take them lightly. And I mean, if you look at the differential growth rates between the Chinese and the Indian economies over the last 20, 25 years, it's not a source of sanguinity. I mean, the Indians continue to grow, but they're not so much above the rate of, of, of population growth. So, I mean, this is, this is kind of the view that's shared, I think, across the official, you know, and kind of Washington or whatever. And you could say that that's wrong, blah, 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 blah. But I, I mean, I think it's, if you look at the facts, if you look at what's out there in metal and how the Chinese are practicing, I mean, there was an article today in one of the Air Force publications that, you know, U.S. air, air flying hours that are historic low. I mean, there's some sources that suggest the Chinese may be doing more of that stuff than we are. So that's the world we're moving into. And the idea that we're in, in the unipolar world, I just don't think holds up. Well, I mean, we can look at their carriers. Their carriers are old ski slope designs. They're the one newer carrier. Their catapult system doesn't work. The ski slope designs automatically gives the United States a far better advantage uh, with, with the fighter jets in that respect. They have almost no nuclear subs. The subs that they do have currently right now are absolutely so loud that you might as well play ACDC on the intercom while you're trying to hunt somebody. You know, they, they, they have uh, their conscripts, their conscript army has a high turnover rate. They don't serve for a very long time. And if things don't go to plan, they don't really have, they don't, they don't have the coordination for, for something that goes off, you know, off, uh, off script for them. That they, you know, for, for me, you know, I'm looking at all these things and I'm just like, how can the Chinese military or specifically their Navy compete with the United States? Let's just say in Equatorial Guinea, which I'm actually friends with the, with the king, so the dictator's son, but with the school with them. But I mean, how if the United States wanted to put choke, point, choke points globally, you know, the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal, the Horn of Africa, what could the Chinese military possibly do? In my respect, absolutely nothing. They get blown right well, out of the water. Right now they after... couldn't, but they're building. Right, a Navy. No, oh, I mean, yeah. Equatorial Guinea is at the ragged edge of their, right? I mean, they have established almost 
essentially effective operational control of the South China Sea. So like the I mean, ASEAN is far more important than like Southern Africa, right? Like in yeah. terms of the economic weight. So they're building outward from there. I mean, we can see where they're going. And I mean, again, I mean, they're building their their submarines are improving. They don't need ballistic missile submarines. They've already got, according to an open congressional dis- notification by U.S. Strategic Command, they have more ICBM silos than the United States does now. Right. They use road mobile and ICBM. They're building a triad, which is a surprising a surprise to us. Their carriers are improving. Again, they've pushed our carriers back. Right. I mean, the notion that carrier the carriers are useless is wrong. Our carriers are useless. But on the other hand. You're not going to send like it's not it ain't 1995, 1996. We ain't sending those carriers anywhere near China uh, in the event of a conflict. In fact, they're going to be going the other way to survive. So they've got a they've got a way that they're building out um, this this plan that doesn't exactly mimic ours because they're in a different military and sort of geographic situation. But but they definitely I mean, our 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 military people take them very seriously. Oh, there's no question that you take it seriously. And I want to make it clear that I'm not suggesting that we just ignore China's threat for over the long term. But I don't see China as a military threat to the United States for the next 10 or 20 years. 50 years, 75 years, different story. They're absolutely trying to gear up for that. But but we have also have to keep in mind that the entire Chinese economy is handcuffed by the U.S. dollar. Without the U.S. dollar, their economy absolutely implodes. Their, their one goes into hyperinflation. And there is no China to speak of, and there's no military expenditures that they can actually enact. That's a weapon that the United States enjoys, being the reserve currency issuer that, you know, I think the military has been talking. Uh, Michael Cowell was talking about it, wrote a paper at West Point. So, but that's something, that's another aspect. Yeah, but if we, if, we, if we do that, it's mutual assured destruction. They can blow up our economy, too. Imagine if they cut off exports. I mean, our, our trade with them has gone up, and they hold tons of treasuries. So, like, I mean, it's, it's a mutual... I mean, we. Yeah, they can't. They can't. We, yeah, but they can't. They can't. They can't sell the treasuries without employees. You're, you're exactly right. Instead well, of I mean, it's mutual assured destruction. So we're neither of us going to. So it's going to come down to who wins the local fight, and that's that's the problem. And I mean, you say that, but she didn't. I mean, the official assessment of a Democratic appointee intelligence community is that Xi Jinping has given the PLA 2027, and as Admiral Gilday, the CNO, the Chief of Naval Operations, points out, they tend to exceed their timelines. So, I mean, I'm not, I, I hear you say that, but I just like, uh-huh. <laughs> if you look at what they're doing, it's extremely worrying. Oh, we should be worried. There's no question we should be worried. I'm just, I'm just standing at the, I'm just standing on the, uh, on the table here saying, if you, if the Chinese do do this, their, the economic ramifications would be so devastating to Xi that he wouldn't, he probably wouldn't even survive a week there. You know, so this is this is another thing that I'm just like, you know, it, it's it's not a clear cut case that they're going to invade Taiwan. Listen, I, of course, we got to watch it. There's no question we have to watch it. We have to be very nervous because if they do take Taiwan, it's a big black eye to the United States. It hurts. It hurts our, uh, our you know, our tech sector tremendously. So we do have, you know, to worry about it. But, you know, in my respect, in my, in my view. You know, I, I don't think that, you know, 2027 is a realistic date that they can actually take Taiwan, specifically looking at what happened to Russia. And the, the, the PLA has to be looking at that, saying if we get if we get if the United States interjects here and we get decimated, you know, what happens then? 
I mean, this allows a little bit to to come to come full 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 circle a little bit. And when I listen to to uh, the way you two debated this, but isn't that in itself a significant risk? Like as Elbridge said, it's mutually assured destruction. So it's a it's a matter of how do I estimate kind of my own side and how do I estimate the other side? And do I believe that in this potential mutually assured destruction, which side has the longer breath? Who has, quote unquote, the willpower to endure such a conflict? And do you think, and the question again goes to both of you, is it possible that that the Chinese, that kind of everything Albert says is right? And also Albert say everything that Albert says is right, but that maybe, for example, the Chinese, that they assume, I mean, I'm spitballing here, this is pure conjecture, of course, uh, but that they say that they assume that the, the the U.S. are internally weak. They are culturally weak. If China cuts off exports, if I, I'm now being facetious a little bit for dramatic effect, but if Americans and Europeans, right, if we don't get the iPhone in the store, uh, and of course even worse things, medical equipment, you know, protective gear, all these kind of things, that very soon public opinion will kind of turn against the conflict with China. That, that similarly to what we have seen, at least in some European countries is Ukraine, right? That people say, well, why should I care about Taiwan? Right? Why should I care about this? I want my, you know, trinkets that are that are assembled in, in China. And, and if they expand in Southeast Asia, why not? Again, it's, I say it a little bit provocatively, but isn't, isn't that maybe potentially a risk that the Chinese in some area are willing to take because they say, yeah, this is going to be painful for us. But we can endure the pain longer than others. And I know a point, maybe, Albert, that you can speak a little bit on, uh, because you made this in the past very often, which is quite crucial, is that, of course, China is strongly depending on food imports. And I think one argument you made in the past is that uh, if food becomes a problem in China, that Xi is basically toast. But just as a, again, a playing devil's advocate, but we know there have been Chinese rulers in the past who politically did survive famines. So, so can we be sure that in such a conflict that maybe the Chinese are simply are going to hurt, but that they are more willing to take the pain compared compared to us? Well, they didn't have they didn't have the middle class that they do today. Is the problem? There's been plenty of uh, of uh, lifting of the Chinese people in the middle class that they're now they're accustomed to certain things and won't, <laughs> won't want to see going backwards at the moment. I mean, if, if the Chinese decide to go take Taiwan, without question, those ports will be off limits for shipping for unknown set of time, depending on what the scenario is. I mean, it could be three months. It could be six months. It could be a year. Nobody knows. It's, you know, it's just too much of a risk for the Chinese to have no imports of food and <laughs> food and energy for, for the, you know, for that amount of time. It, it would risk complete economic destruction of China. And I just said for, for that alone, I would say that it's just too risky. Well, but I mean, the sanctions haven't even worked on Russia. The notion that you're going to get stronger sanctions on China when there's so much money to be made and there's obviously so many countries that are going to be willing to participate. Now, I mean, there's a couple of things here, right? One is that the reason that I'm not fatalistic about this is I think that war is not inevitable, that it's not inevitable that the Chinese will attack because there are great risks, mostly having to do with projecting force across the strait. So we're talking in kind of general terms, but like the main issue is going to be how successful they think they, they are going to be, in my view, in the attack. Because if they're, if they, let's, if, you know, there's a very, very different, I mean, we're talking about Ukraine. The reason Ukraine survived is not the sanctions, is not the West. I mean, there's, there's the weapons and monetary support, but it's basically, the, A, the Ukrainians' own resistance and the failure of the Russian military. So clearly, Xi Jinping is going to take from that 
I want to be really sure that my attack is going to be as successful as it possibly can. But if the if it, it's going to be a very different situation if the Chinese attack and after 48 hours Taiwan has basically capitulated, right? Then people are going to say, look, I'm not going to commit economic suicide. Even in the United States, I don't think there's going to be clear. There are going to be a lot of voices in the United States that are going to say, look, it's a fait accompli. Like we'd be crazy. What can we do about it, right? And like you know, I mean. Why haven't I was going back and forth? This guy who was in the Trump administration was like, "Well, the reason that we haven't succeeded with the Russians is because we haven't put on the like the sanctions that we put on Venezuela and Iran." It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> right, because it, probably there's a reason, right? I'm not saying it's like necessarily a good reason or not, but there are going to be huge structural constraints and interests. Like, obviously, the Russians are going to sell the Chinese food. I mean, there's going to be a huge price premium on oil. I mean, I assume the Iranians are going to sell them food. Or oil, I assume other the Gulf states would probably sell them food because the price is, is going to be very, very high. Um, and the Chinese are going to contest our ability to, to sustain that blockade. I mean, obviously, a blockade is something that net is in our advantage. Our Navy is actually not really structured to conduct a distant blockade at this point. It's really it's structured more for um, power projection and to some extent sea control. Um, but that's, you know, th that's not that's not how the complex is going to go. I think, but I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a, de a deterrent to shoot. I mean, the way, the right way to look at this, I think, is not to completely discount economic sanctions. My view is economic sanctions, particularly if Xi Jinping is thinking about whether or not he's going to roll the dice, the economic risks are significant or in a way on him. On the other hand, I think if he can kind of put a number on them and take care of them, then he's going to be able to say, okay, is this going to succeed? Um, if if he actually go if he actually makes the go decision, I think economic sanctions are going to have very little effect. I mean, it's it's hard to find in history an example of economic sanctions really being like a decisive victory mechanism. It's almost in, 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 almost uh, always like the direct military fight. The sanctions and, and bombing and so forth can attrit the other side ability to conduct the war. But as we see with the Russians, but it's it's very unlikely to make them to give them make them give up. And of course, the Chinese once they it's once once a conflict starts over Taiwan, that is a deeply held issue and central to the identity of not only this Communist Party in general, but Xi Jinping. So that's a very relying on economic economic sanctions is very very unwise. The key thing that we really have to do is be able to to demonstrate to them that we can defeat clearly. I mean, ideally, clearly and with very high probability, defeat the invasion. I think we've moved past the point where we can kind of very readily say that we're now in a world where it's arguable um, and, and possibly trending in the Chinese favor. We'll see what the administration's uh, budget requests they're advertising that they're uh, um, talking about a lot of munitions. Um, that's encouraging. There's not a lot that we can do in, in the space of you know, single digit years because of the nature of defense procurement, the defense industrial base and so forth. But I think, you know, this is like we, we got to really like crystallize the problem. And this is not about Europe and Germany having a nice saying, you know, you know, the Euro European Union saying something about Taiwan. This is about whether or not American military forces with Taiwan, Japan, Australia could defeat a Chinese invasion. If, if, if she thinks the Chinese invasion is going to be defeated, I don't think he'll, he'll act. I mean, Mao Zedong wanted to take over Taiwan, but he never tried, really, because he knew he would fail. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that assessment. I mean, it's a risk versus reward thing for Xi and the PLA at the moment. I mean, if they if they could take Taiwan today, they would absolutely take Taiwan today. But it would have to be a clear a clear victory, and it has to be really quick because they can't have an extended uh, conflict over it. I mean, if, for them, you know, a six month conflict would be disastrous. 
You know, so I agree. But I definitely agree. It's a risk versus reward thing at this point. If you allow me to kind of conclude with one very difficult question, but I, I'd be very interested to hear your take on us as kind of as we as we close out this uh, this Twitter space. Um, in, in 1941 or in the 1940-1941, right, the U.S. and the Allies decided that they have to make common calls with the Soviet Union to defeat Nazi Germany. And then after 1945, gradually kind of they reintegrated Germany into the, the, the defense strategy to use them also as part of their counterweight to the Soviet Union. Now, I'm using these examples because the question, that's given what's currently going on, a very, very difficult question, but I want to ask it nonetheless. On the long run, do you think it might be necessary to, despite without a doubt the atrocities, the war crimes that have happened, kind of to bring, maybe not as an ally, but at least as, as, a, as a sympathizing state, if you want, to bring Russia back into the Western sphere of influence or into the Western fold? Kind of, if, if Melina forgives me, if I, I borrow a, a term from her, kind of to, to, to break the bear out of the, out, out of the dragon bear, so to speak, which uh, for good reasons, I think uh, currently seems like a horrific thought, but also what Elbridge described, right? And, and all, but what you described, kind of to, to kind of break the potential land bridge or one land bridge to China, whether it's then um, you know, energy resources or, or, or food. So, so that we kind of have to, or potentially to look very cold and calculating uh, at, at the long-term relationship with Russia. And as, again, whatever one thinks about it, um, that in the past we have may, maybe not forgiven, but decided to overlook atrocities by states like, for example, Germany, um, uh, when, when strategic imperatives demanded it. I, mean, I know it's a difficult question, but maybe both of you, kind of as, as a concluding remark, could give us your, your view on this. I think that that ship has sailed at the moment. It's just the actions of the United States against the Russians and putting them in a corner has most likely solidified that, you know, Valina's coined term, the dragon bear, uh, for for decades to come. And this is pro that's when, when Elbridge mentioned, you know, Russia supplying them with food and energy and whatnot. This is this is the problem that the United States faces. It's like you, you, we 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 push too hard in one area with the Russians. And now we have to live with the ramifications of China and Russia, you know, sticking together, you know, even through a conflict uh, for the next you know few decades, probably the next generation, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I have a different, a somewhat different view. I mean, to be clear, I think what what Putin and the Kremlin have de have done and are doing is evil. It's a, a, a war of aggression, and they're conducting barbarities against the Ukrainian people, as I'm sure you guys both agree. Um, that's not the issue, or that is the that is the issue, I should say. Um, uh, but um, you know, and I and I think it's very important to kind of frame this before we start, like. There's a, you know, I would dis, I would differentiate a moral foreign policy from a moralistic foreign policy. I mean, I think we have a lot of moralism in our foreign policy, like President Biden typifies in a lot of ways. He went to Kiev and gave a kind of chest thumping speech. And he said, I left my heart in Kiev and will always stand with democracies and autocracies. And then he comes back and like a week later, his administration is saying, oh, I actually didn't mean that. So like that, that's not to me, that's not in a sense, foreign policy is like a fiduciary. It should be a steward particularly to the, to the, in a republic, I would imagine a constitutional monarchy is the same idea, but it should be a steward to the, the people, right, the citizenry. And so a moral foreign policy, in my view, is one that takes the long view and says, what's in our people's interest in a way that, you know, obviously we're not committing evil or barbarous acts in the international sphere. Well, 
China is the biggest problem. It's the biggest threat to, to, to us all. I mean, if, if, if Americans are, are worried about China, Europeans should be terrified because, I mean, you're weak and fractious, right? I'm sorry. But like if Americans, the most cohesive, the strongest country in the world for over a century is worried about China, Europe should be petrified, right? If that's the biggest challenge, then we need to act accordingly. And I mean, you mentioned Stalin, Ralph. That's true. One of history's biggest murderers. The, we also made common cause with another of history's biggest murderers, Mao Zedong. Doesn't mean that we think that Mao Zedong was good or Joseph Stalin was good, but we had a priority that we needed to meet. In the case of China, we went too far. In some sense, in the case of the USSR, briefly, but in in China, we went along with that system too long. But I think the point that I would say is we should look at Russia over time. It's, we should think about Europe, of course, and and uh, you know a sort of fair and stable situation for Ukraine and for, for Europe, but we should, we should be thinking about it through the lens of how does this relate to the competition with China? Now, that does not mean that we are just nice and get taken advantage of by Vladimir Putin. Again, I think we've tried that. We've tried to reset several times and it hasn't worked. It may be that being tough on Russia in some ways could actually be more effective, and especially if we can see a future government. I mean, if you look, you know, Khrushchev was followed by Brezhnev, which had a different policy, at least for some time. Um, I think that's the kind of mindset that we should be taking, where at a minimum, we should be seeking to sort of detach and drive wedges between the Chinese and the Russians. Because, you know, if we accept that they're going to be the dragon bear for the foreseeable future, that's a huge, huge. I mean, that, that is I mean, the largest states in Eurasia arrayed against us. That's not a good situation for us to be in doesn't mean that we need to become allies with the Russians, but I think we should be looking for opportunities where possible over time to drive wedges, consist also balancing that with our interests in Europe. I mean, I mean, when we're thinking about Russia, obviously we're thinking a lot more about Europe. When we're thinking about China, we're going to think about Asia and the globe more. But I think that's the way I would recommend thinking about the Russia uh, issue in, in the context of China. All right. Well, there's much we left unsaid. I would have loved to touch on Indonesia. Uh, there would have been a lot to talk about India. We did. We barely mentioned Iran. Uh, I apologize for the topics we didn't get to. Elbridge Colby, Albert Marku, thank you so much for taking the time. Again, my apologies for making everyone wait for an hour. Uh, I think it was worth it. This was this was fantastic, and I'm looking forward to doing this again in the future. Thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened to. Um, hopefully, we can do this again. Have a good day, have a good night, and I hope to talk to all of you soon. Thank, Thank you, you all. Thank bye you. Bye.